Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. This is Dr. Simon in Florida, soon to be almost chilly Florida. Hey, finally, uh, the, the cool, the dry season that brings with it cool weather may actually happen after six and a half or seven months of the hottest summer on record here in Florida. Uh, looking forward to that. In any event, um, the last couple of shows I've done have been about psychotherapy, uh, which uh, I put in quotes, the word therapy, because what we do or I do consciously, although most people I know who do therapy do it uh, intuitively, uh, is, is not really therapeutic in the sense that it's medical. Uh, I have talked extensively over the years about the terrible label we give people uh, with our so-called diagnoses, which have no medical basis. Not one of them has a basis in a diagnosable medical problem. Um, but, but, and what happens when somebody's identity is swallowed up, the entire identity is swallowed up by a diagnosis, schizophrenic, I am a, I'm, I am an addict. Uh, no, you drink too much. You take too many drugs. Uh, you're doing something that is harmful to you and yourself and, and others, um, getting into all kinds of trouble economically with it. But what it is is you're doing. It's not what you are. And what I talked about in the last couple of sessions is the chance for people when they come into therapy to be in a non-judgmental situation in which the labels that have defined them, uh, which really are, are an outgrowth of the authoritarian relationships of family, uh, of church, of school, um, are put aside. And the question is, what did you say? What did you do? What did he or she say? What did they do? To get a sense of what it feels like to be a particular person in a given set of situations. What are the motives? What are the thoughts and the feelings? What is the story that the person lives by that accounts for their actions? rather than some label. Not doing well in school, you don't comprehend what the teacher says, how does the teacher teach, what was the level of your preparation when you entered into a particular class, what was the emotional state, rather than I'm stupid. Uh, Defining the identity in such a way that says not only can I not uh, um, learn, I'll never be able to learn. So there's a self-hatred, a rage against kids in the class who can learn easily, and a sense of hopelessness and helplessness that fills any individual 
with that configuration of thoughts and, and emotion with depression, uh, with an inability to move, with a feeling of the emotion I use, stuckness. You're stuck. And the feeling of being stuck is a terrible feeling. But with a good therapy, there's an exploration of that. Um, one of the things that Freud demanded, and most people who become a psychoanalytically oriented as therapists, uh, is that they have to go for their own therapy. Because if you can't understand your own story and what it inhibits in your trying to help somebody or what it inhibits in your life that is moralized, uh, the labels that you use for yourself and where they come from, then it becomes very, very difficult to uh, help the individual who comes to you and stirs up the same kind of conflicts and emotions that are holding you back, that are causing the suffering uh, in the therapist. Because first and foremost, the therapist is a human being. And we all come from our childhoods, and we all come from our life interactions with a lot of baggage. And it's the understanding of the baggage. Again, from somebody who helps uh, you understand from a non-judgmental point of view in which there's a discussion about what, who said, what was the situation like, how often did it occur, and a thousand other questions in which a, a narration takes place that somebody may never have even thought to have because it was forbidden on the one hand by external forces in the family perhaps, or by the church, uh, or by uh, the school authorities or the teacher, that this dialogue takes place, opening up all kinds of vistas and openings for a reevaluation of the self, of others, and the hope of creating a new plan with which to live. Uh, last week, I talked about the fact that the goals that we talk about are not scientific goals. The science is in the means to the goals. The, the goals are what we believe should be. A person says, I want to be able to, to live. I want to be able to enjoy my sex life. I should be able to. And then explore an alternate morality in order to understand and make decisions about one's life uh, so that a different set of behaviors and a different life story can emerge. Um, the idea of being more creative and, and, and uh, less inhibited because of a fear of rejection, of a terror uh, that something will come down on your head uh, that existed in childhood but may not exist at the present time is, is very important and very powerful. I'm always surprised uh, that somebody will say something to me. I once had, uh, I was in therapy for about three years, three times a week. And I'm convinced, and I won't go through the crisis in my own life that went on in my family, um, but I'm convinced that I had not done that I had not engaged in that process with another human being, I probably would not have stayed married. 
Um, I, I, I would have made a mess of things in a thousand different ways. Um, when I be- went to my internship, I had a wonderful, I can't remember his name, but then again, I can't remember anybody's name anymore. I could picture his face. And we were talking about the fact, and he said to me, you really ought to go back uh, for some more analysis and try to understand how your social economic status so affected the choices you make in life. And it was like something hit me on the head and went bong. And the more I thought about it, uh, I thought about it that time I had gone to the theater and a friend of mine from high school uh, was there and we started to talk and I said, what are you studying? He said, I'm going for medical school. And the idea that I could have gone to medical school was so far beyond what the conversation was when I was growing up and all of the people I knew. A doctor came from Mars. A doctor was above, outside the realm of possibility. So that um, I never did go back for more analysis, but uh, it just took that, that question. Uh, And all through my teaching career, I had an understanding with my students that we discussed those things, when, particularly when graduation would come. I taught in a community college. And they had to make decisions about what to go to work or go on with their education. And for many of them, the very idea of going on for higher degree was, again, so out of reach in terms of concept. I'll talk a little while about whether it was out of reach economically, whether it was available, because that's going to be the main theme of tonight's discussion uh, or, or my rant, as, it, as these things very often turn out to be. Um, and I remember a young black woman uh, sitting in my class. She sat, it was a class in personality theory, psychology, and she sat up in front, and she was just a pleasure to interact with. She was wonderful. And I think I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. And she said to me one day after class, I was accepted to Columbia University, but I think I'll go to Brooklyn. I said, what's wrong with Columbia? And she said, well, that's, you know, a private school. I said, are they giving you money? She says, yes, they're going to give me a full scholarship. And I said, you know, you'll get a wonderful education at Brooklyn. I know many of the people who teach there. Uh, I'm a member of the city university. I'm very proud of what we do uh, and helping people achieve, you know, a good life uh, for themselves. But Columbia will open doors that you don't know exist. And and that was such a a clear feeling that I had. Uh, I never would have dreamed of going to a private school because economically it was impossible. It was just no way that could possibly happen. And very few of the people I knew who went to college, most didn't go to college from from the block and the neighborhood I lived in. Many went to jail, many went dead of overdose of drugs, uh, and many went to college, but it it was, uh, you went to City College or Hunter College, you went to the free university. Every once in a while, uh, somebody who wanted a college who didn't have good grades went to NYU or Pace University, uh, which at the time was maybe fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars, uh, and Daddy shelled it out. And they went because they wanted an education, uh, or they wanted to go to college. 
Uh, so it wasn't an issue for me to go to Columbia. I didn't know anybody who went to Columbia. And this young woman who came out of uh, Bed-Stuy uh, in Brooklyn, which at that time was still an all-black uh, uh, minority, except uh, with an enclave of ultra-Orthodox Jews, um, uh, Brooklyn was a most interesting place. I guess it still is, although now it's being uh, yuppified. And now the same brownstones that people lived in for a uh, very low cost are selling for, for $10, $15 million, particularly if they're near the uh, bay and you can look across the harbor at uh, New York City, the skyline. Um, but I want to now shift the discussion to, uh, and it started with, um, well, let me, let me, close this aspect. Most of the work that I learned to do as a psychotherapist was about the childhood of the individual and the intrapsychic dynamics that had to be changed. The self-hatred, the projections, the other defense mechanisms of denial, uh, uh, which allow, didn't allow the individual to even consider alternate stories until they were so unhappy and they were so desperate that they uh, opened the door and came into a psychotherapist's office. That, that was limited. And if the social environment was, was uh, discussed, it was the family. Uh, when I came into the field and started studying psychology, it was now in the let's see, 1960s, early, late 50s, early 60s. Mothers were the cause of every misery that can be imagined. And mother was never contextualized. In other words, what opportunities did mother have? Her upbringing. Somebody's trying to call me. If you hear a buzzing sound, I'm not going to answer it. But, uh, when, when, uh, so mothers were, were the ones uh, who were either cold and distant or over-infantilizing or created sexual tensions with their children, particularly their boy children. The relationship between daddy and mommy was even rarely discussed, unless daddy was a tyrant of a sort. If daddy was abusive physically, psychologically, or sexually, he came into the conversation. But nothing external, nothing on the larger social level, the larger political scene, and in all the early years, the decades of my work, what would happen politically and what was going on politically and socially and economically never really got discussed. Uh, the idea was if you worked hard and if you overcame your, your personal conflicts, you worked through all of your denials and projections and other defenses, you would find a way out. And indeed, to a certain degree, that was true. But as I got older, I realized how difficult it is to create a new story in a new part of the world if you have a, no access to it at all. Or B, you don't even know it exists, like my student 
who had no idea about the meaning of going to an Ivy League school in our society. It wasn't until the 70s that the feminist revolution took place. Uh, it, it, one, an interesting side story here. Uh, when Freud came up with the idea of the Oedipus complex and the Electra complex, he insisted that these were internal conflicts. Uh, for example, uh, when a female patient told him he was she had been abused, sexually abused, it was that she had the sexual desires for her father, and when these were repudiated, uh, then she had all kinds of conflicts involving anger and rage, uh, etc., etc. It was only in the 70s we discovered that some of Freud's most famous cases were in fact women who had been sexually abused. In fact, it's common. We now know it's common. And of course, sometimes I think it's more common because we want it to be more common for political reasons, but there's no doubt, especially this week, with the Harvey Weinstein expose, how many women that he sexually groped how many did he rape? How many did he abuse? And not only him. The story of the casting couch, of what happens when a woman applies for a job based upon her looks, uh, and not specific, uh, a specific set of skills or training that would put her in some kind of a structured situation. How many of the women who got their jobs got it? because they gave in to a sexual activity that they didn't want. And it turns out, and anybody who's interested could uh, Google the name Frederick Cruz, C-R-E-W-E-S, uh, who really wrote some interesting books on just how biased Freud had been in denying the possibility that some of his female patients were in fact abused. Um, how many of the patients that I worked with who had been abused had told their mothers and were called whores or told they were lying? And the real damage to them was not only the powerlessness of created by a large man, sometimes a father, sometimes an uncle, sometimes uh, an older brother, uh, the rage and, and the shame that that produced, but to be abandoned by one's mother not to be taken seriously, was in many ways more devastating. So in the 70s, it began, we began to look. In the 70s, we began to look at the idea of race. Um, I had nothing to do with any minority when I was growing up. Nothing. Uh, we had a group of Puerto Ricans that lived north of me, and we referred to them as spicks. And if we saw a black, uh, they could be a nigger. Uh, we didn't even, as Ronald Reagan said, we didn't know racism existed because we didn't recognize how deep and how powerful race is in our culture. And I'm always amazed at uh, those of us who were Jewish and were nearly exterminated uh, any number of times, but particularly during the Holocaust, could then turn around without any awareness whatsoever and dehumanize another individual because of their color or because of race.
But these are powerful considerations that become part of the therapy, but they become part of the inhibition and the difficulty of the therapy. Um, the young lady I spoke, spoke about who going to Columbia, when I asked, how much do you have money? Uh, can you pay for tuition? She didn't have to. They gave her a full, uh, a full scholarship because uh, she really was an outstanding individual uh, and an asset, particularly because uh, most colleges lose 25 or so percent of their freshman class. So if they can find somebody, a good, really good student uh, that would reflect well on, their, on the college or university, uh, by the second or third year, they're very often glad to do so. Uh, because then the competition for those seats are much different than they would be if you, they were applying uh, from, from high school to their freshman year. Um, my granddaughter and her mommy went to a discussion of Duke University this past week, and she was very impressed with the program at Duke that she's interested in, uh, and uh, really excited by it, until it was announced that the cost of one year at Duke University, books, tuition, room and board, is $72,000. As I say it, I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. To spend $300,000 on a child's education, and if you have two or three children, you're talking about a million dollars for undergraduate, unless, of course, they load up on the kind of debt now that is suffocating an entire generation of college graduates who discover they can't possibly pay off the loans that, uh, that uh, uh, um on their shoulders when they get out into a market that if they can get a good job, still won't cover what uh, uh, would essentially be the mortgage on a large house. Uh, and this is not a house. I, people get married now uh, after asking how much student debt are you in that I might have to assume once we get married. So that when we talk about the limits of therapy, uh, we talk about the fact that sometimes the therapist can't get past his own uh, uh, crap, uh, or there is no opportunity to even think about opportunities and talk about opportunities because the individual doesn't know them, doesn't know how to say them. Okay? This is not quite the same as the individual who's afraid to save them because they have been oppressed in such a way as to be obedient. I'm always talking about that concept, obedience. Uh, you're obedient uh, to the law of God or the law of your parents with terrible threats of punishment, including death, if you are disobedient. The worst thing in the world for a teacher, uh, I've heard many times, is to have disobedient students. Uh, to be disobedient is as bad as it can be. 
And yet, there's no examination of the rules so it went, uh, uh, that are being applied and the labels that are being applied to the individual as part of the punishment to make them obedient, docile. The politics of the home, the politics of the classroom, that becomes fair game for a good therapy. Okay? You're not living in your father's house. You can't get a beating now. The idea that you're safe in a room with somebody and can discuss all of this uh, and deal with the shame of it and deal with the anger and the rage of it. But the things that you don't know exist that just are beyond the ken of an individual who's raised in a ghetto, who's raised in poverty, who's raised in a society uh, that uh, is, deals uh, with sexual, stereo, sex, sexual uh, behavior in a way. Uh, one of the more interesting things that um, uh, I could talk about in my own teaching experience is that in the last several years of my teaching, I had large numbers of students from Pakistan and India, and they wanted to date. Uh, they didn't dare even think about the sexual freedom that was talked about openly by American students. And we can get into a discussion, a moral discussion, of whether their sexual behavior was necessarily good or bad. But the idea of that was beyond them. And as one young woman said to me, I come home and I don't dare talk to my father about what I want for myself as an American citizen, as an American woman, because if I say it, he will send me back to Pakistan to be married to some Pakistani man, maybe 20 years, 30 years older than me, and I will never see the United States again. If she were my patient, that would be a terrible inhibition to the therapy. She would now have to literally break with her family. That would be an enormously difficult thing to do to walk away from her family and all of the rules and all of the morals and all of the mores and all of the social aspects, which she doesn't like, but many of which not only she does like, but define her as a human being in so many ways. I was reading in the Times, in fact, this very show uh, was stimulated by an article one of the things I read every Sunday in the Times is the classical section. And uh, the article uh, by Zachary Wolf, I've never heard of him, was talking about an opera by Thomas Ades called Exterminating Angel. Uh, Thomas Ades is an Englishman, 46 years old, and I believe, and most of the cognizanti, most uh, uh, critics believe, one of the really great living composers in classical music. And every time a new piece of his come out, comes out, uh, I immediately download it. I don't have to go to the store anymore like I used to love to do and find the disc and bring it home and play it. I just now have to go into Apple Music uh, and if it's been recorded, there it is. I can listen if I like it. I download it, make it part of my, my, own, my own collection. Uh, and it's called Exterminating Angel. And it's based upon a Louis, Louis Buñuel film. 
And I want to read something about the film, uh, 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 which the story, his opera. By the way, I tried to listen to the opera. I don't like opera. There's so much of it that goes on and on and on. You can't understand the words. This is in English, and I can't understand the words. But so much of it, uh, when I, I love Puccini. I, loved, uh, uh, I love Carmen. When the arias. And this is a two-and-a-half-hour opera, and I'd have to go through the whole two-and-a-half to find the arias, arias, which the reviews say are there and quite wonderful. Uh, I'll wait for a disc to come out with the arias if I live long enough. Uh, what's it about, the opera? A wealthy couple hosts a dinner party. But when the meal is over, even though there's no evident physical barrier, everyone finds it mysteriously impossible to leave the room. Days go by, the guests become hungry, dirty, and hysterical, eventually turning on one another. And the author writes, Think Lord of the Bourgeois Flies. He suggests that in the opera, Mr. Ardes seizes the story and makes it his own, delving into the underground river of meaning. As he says in an interview in the program, his powerful score reveals the harrowing absurdity of the situation. The Buñuel story, they believe, really deals with those who are complacent in Spain during the fascist Franco years. And they were part of the wealthy. They went along with, with uh, uh, Franco. But like most dictators who create a totalitarian state, he destroys so much of what the good life is. And that brings me to um, this statement by Wolf. Our time is like the Franco era, one in which many have vividly perceived a stagnant elite, the dinner party of the exterminating angel can be seen in the 21st century as an orgy of the 1%. I don't think it's just the 1%. I think most of us who have comfortable lives uh, are, are behaving in ways politically that uh, ignore what's going on. And the sensation of frozenness, of being enmeshed in a crisis from which it is impossible to withdraw may well be familiar to anyone who follows the news. And I copied this down because everyone I know, including myself, feels exactly this way. Something is taking place that we're not dealing with, and it's enmeshing us. We're frozen. Uh, we're frozen. In a political situation in which science is being attacked Free public education is being eroded. By the way, I wanted to, uh, if I went to this uh, meeting with uh, uh, Duke University, what percentage of classes are taught actually by a professor? And how many students are there in a class with the, the tenured professors? How many of the classes are, in fact, a lecture of 200 by the professor who teaches one class, and then graduate students teach the rest of the course, a huge number of which uh, will be PhDs or have PhDs who can't hope to get a job as a tenured professor and go from college to college trying to collect enough courses. 
usually $2,000, $3,000 a course, depending upon the university, to earn a living and try to pay off the horrendous debt that saddles them, that freezes them, that wouldn't even allow them to go in for therapy if they wanted to. Uh, because that's how our universities are now structured. Um, the, the oppression that's taking place, just now somebody sent me a, uh, um, a, a thing that uh, Scott here in Florida, who has already forbidden anybody who, in his administration or who works for the state government to use the word climate change is trying to get a bill passed, which probably will be passed, that will allow any citizen to come into and complain to the school board about any part of the curriculum that they don't like. Uh, three EPA scientists going to a conference have been forbidden to read their papers on climate change. Science is under attack. Free inquiry is under attack. Free press is under attack. Will we become a society in which we're all frozen and psychologically hungry and turning on each other? Because I don't know how far down the road we are, but it's enough to keep me up at night and worry not just for me. I'll be dead in a few years, but for my children and especially my grandchildren. I don't know a man in my development, it's an over 55 community, all of them, almost all of them have grandchildren, and all of them have this sick feeling about what's going on politically, what's going on educationally, what's going on in terms of the climate. Will there be air enough, or water enough, or food enough? Psychotherapy under those circumstances has no meaning. In the book section of this Sunday Times, it was a series of books written about what it was like under Stalin in the Soviet Union when he took over uh, uh, from Lenin and, and the Bolshevik revolution took place. Children were spying on their parents who were spying on their children. Neighbors turned in neighbors. It was a paralyzing, stultifying time in which the idea of a democratically structured psychotherapy was simply beyond Ken. It couldn't be thought of, and certainly one would be put to death if one was discovered doing it. This terrifies me. As much as I love the idea of psychotherapy, it is inherently a democratic process. It is a process that allows individual the freedom to think and feel and express themselves to see if there's another way to go <clears throat> and hopefully find another way to go. One of my goals in therapy with many of the patients I work with when I was at Flushing uh, Hospital for 25 years was to suggest to them, did you ever think about getting your GED degree? Do you ever think about going back to school? You like to read. How about going to Queens College and taking some courses in American and British literature? I am a big believer that literature is its own psychotherapy. 
to get into the mind of another individual and, and spend time struggling with the underlying lives of the people and the motions and the stories uh, that people live with in good literature, even, even in popular literature, is critical for the development of an individual along the democratic lines uh, that I believe in, in which a thoughtful, uh, reflective life become part of one's existence. Queens College, you could take a course, or sit in a course, and order a course for nothing or next to nothing. It doesn't exist anymore. It's not available. And so I worry about this. I can no longer turn on the television. I watch Fox News tonight for a while because I forced myself. And they were talking about the uh, conflict between the widow of uh, this young man, Richards, uh, and, and his wife, and the way she reacted to the phone call. Uh, and this young lady was saying, oh, I feel sorry for her. I know her pain because I'm a, a gold star widow. I know the difficulty, but Trump was wonderful to me. And I thought, oh, am I being perverse? This woman is white and blonde. The other one is black. Could race possibly be part of the explanation for the difference in how these two people feel they were treated? But if I turn on CNN and I turn on CNBC, all I hear are reporters in a kind of an agony. It is the Trump show, 24-7. Fox, they find a way to justify Trump. On those two stations, it's what outrage has he and his administration performed today? And we can't believe it. Believe it. We're there. Trump has even suggested getting the license of NBC lifted so that they can't have reporting. That would be something that Stalin and Hitler, uh, Mussolini, clearly would have approved of. I don't know where we're going, but I don't like it. And I feel like the people at the dinner party that are being described in Buniel's uh, uh, picture, uh, which I hope to find on, on cable someday, or uh, the opera by Thomas Adess. A feeling of stultification, a paralysis uh, that obviates what psychotherapy is all about, which is always between individuals or an individual and a small group. I'm finished. I bought a fresh ice cream, some kind of salted caramel. Oh, Ben and Jerry's is so good. I shouldn't eat it. It upsets my stomach. I wake up in the morning uh, uh, feeling like a dirigible filled with gas. But I'm going to have some anyway. Anybody want to call in? I went longer than I usually want. I put 45 minutes, and I have now, how many minutes do I have left on this? Six. Oh, I went 39 minutes, going up to 40 minutes. Who the hell can listen for 40 minutes? Anyway, I hope you do. I hope you tell your friends if you hear this. Uh, I am now have listeners all over the world. I have a small group listening in Zambia. Vietnam, China, Brazil, mostly the United States, uh, a lot in England, Australia. Nice feeling. Not a lot of people, but enough that I feel like I'm doing something. 
certainly for myself as a, as a, I feel professorial to a degree when I do these shows. I love doing them. Uh, I'd love somebody to call in. I'd stay on the air for the next five minutes and forego my ice cream if anybody want to call, call in. I usually do Monday. Next Monday, I think I have a conflict between the Democratic Club and, oh, I think it's two weeks. Well, we'll see. And a group that I'm going to join here at my uh, development. My wife and I feel we should be more social. She's certainly more social than I am. Anyway, I'm going to say good night. Good luck. I hope these discussions are helpful to someone somewhere. Uh, you could follow me on Twitter. Uh, me and the president, although he has 150 million followers, I have three. <laughs> Four. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm the better one. Goodbye.